It's great being with you guys um, again at Mountain Fellowship. Awesome to be here. Uh, my family and I are indeed uh, working. Uh, I'm the chaplain this summer at Camp Vesper Point, and so my family is living in the old lodge for the summer, and uh, it's wonderful to be there. Stowe, is Stowe in here? Where's Stowe? There he is. Stowe is in my son's cabin uh, this past week, and uh, it's, just, it's just amazing to be a part of uh, Camp Vesper Point and seeing how the Lord has worked there so faithfully over the years, and um, part of the reason I got to do that is because God has called me into a new ministry, uh, a ministry called See Jesus, uh, that Paul Miller uh, started about 20-some years ago, and uh, Paul Miller is um, a Christian author, uh, but also uh, a man who's been given uh, great wisdom, and uh, I think the gift of, uh, I can say this in a Presbyterian church and not get in trouble, the gift of prophecy, not new revelation uh, of God's Word, but uh, insights into, uh, in a sense of, of calling people back to our first love, uh, hence the name of the ministry, See Jesus. And so uh, we'll get a picture of that, uh, Lord willing, this morning uh, as we open God's Word. Uh, let me pray for us for our time in His Word. Jesus, uh, thank You for uh, just your, your grace. Uh, that's been given to us. Lord, we uh, come this morning uh, to sit at the feet of your Son and to learn what life looks like. Uh, would you give us wisdom and insight uh, from your Word? Lord, thank you that your Spirit always accompanies your Word and your Word will never return void. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. So if you were sitting at El Matate and you heard someone behind you at the table behind you say something like this, I can't do anything by myself, but I only do what I see my daddy doing. What age would you think this child would be? Pretty young, maybe... Uh, an elementary school age child. Um, what, what, what unsolicited advice might you be thinking in your mind or saying to this person behind you? It might be something like, wow, this, uh, this person needs to grow up and uh, get some independence and move out from under their parents' wing a little bit. Uh, isn't that what we're pushing our kids to do? Um, like, well, goodness, you, you only do what you see your daddy doing. Uh, right, I'm, I'm not trying to do a bait and switch on you. Obviously, uh, we just read this passage, uh, but these are the shockingly, uh, the very words of Jesus himself. I can do nothing on my own. I can only do what I see my Father doing. Shockingly, uh, those words, uh, today, I hope that we begin to see uh, the beauty of the person of Jesus. Uh, the importance of looking at the person of Jesus. There's something, uh, if, if someone would have asked me four years ago, um, you know, we're called followers of Jesus. And if someone would have said, like Peter says, for example, walk 
uh, in the footsteps of Jesus or walk as Jesus walked. A lot of the uh, disciples wrote things like that. Uh, four years ago, I would have said to you, as an ordained pastor in the PCA, preaching the gospel from the pulpit, leading Bible studies, shepherding people, I would have said to you, I have no idea how Jesus walked. I had reduced the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, down to a propositional truth. And I had, for years, had this mountain of theological knowledge. But I was like a skeleton walking around. Because truth does not captivate the heart. A person captivates the heart. So it's kind of like, for example, uh, my wife and I just celebrated 22-year anniversary uh, just last week. And when, uh, when I started thinking about, in college, about proposing to my wife, I wasn't in love with the propositional truth of marriage. I didn't think, oh, marriage, yeah, this... I'm in love with this concept called marriage. Uh, but in reality, I was in love with this person who was beautiful, kind, gentle spirit, an amazing person that I fell in love with. That I thought, I want to marry this girl. Do you see the subtle difference in that? And I think what's happened in my heart is, as I talk about this seeing the beauty of Jesus, is that I no longer want to reduce Jesus down to uh, just a, a doctrinal truth of justification by faith, which is awesome. Uh, I, don't wanna, I don't want that my Jesus to become, uh, the Jesus of the Scriptures to become just this uh, this proposition that I, that I follow, but I actually want to fall in love with this person. And I, I was driving down the road the other day, and, and honestly what's happened in my heart is I've, as I begin to study the thing, and Paul Miller has just been so influential in my life in this, uh, I began to see the person of Jesus. I was thinking about a different aspect um, uh, of the person that I saw in a passage that I had been reading and literally was driving down the road and, and tears started flowing from my eyes and I was really just kind of breaking out in doxology as I was driving. I was wondering, man, what is, what is going on in my heart? I've been a believer since I was 12 years old. I was kind of converted again in high school. And, and what it, this is amazing. I don't know what's going on in my heart. And I finally realized that I was falling in love. I was falling in love with this person named Jesus. And so I, this morning, I want to just propose to you and ask you the question, are you in love with Jesus? And if so, why? Do you know His disposition? The cadences of His life? The things that bring him joy, the things that make him sad, 
the things that make him angry. Do you know that Jesus, um, how he walked? Have you? Do you know how he loves and watch the way he loves, the way he shows compassion, the way he's honest? You watch his humility. Are you in love with who he is? Jesus is not a proposition. He's a person. Yes, uh, we should love truth. Please don't tell me like the PCA, right? We have the corner market on truth. I am just wondering, as I look at statistics, uh, I've been studying Gen Z, which is all of my children, uh, which is born from uh, 1999 to 2015 is what Barna categorizes them in. And the statistics are are pretty grim, saying that you know, 50% of kids who grew up in a Christian home, uh, if there's 30 children in this uh, body, uh, that by the time they reach college, half of those children will walk away from the church and never return. 4%, statistically speaking, only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. What's happening in the church? I'm, I'm the student ministry coordinator for See Jesus, and part of my passion is to help See Jesus exist, to come alongside the church, is to help the church recapture the beauty of the person of Jesus. And I'm wondering if perhaps, I don't have any conclusive evidence of this, I'm wondering if perhaps we've gotten the cart before the horse and we've tried to say, hey, fall in love with this truth, these beautiful truths of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, the the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, all these wonderful truths. Have we started with captivating their heart by truth, with truth, rather than captivating their heart with the person of Jesus? And so that's my conviction this morning, I want us to just look at an example uh, to learn from the Scriptures uh, a biblical principle of dependence. Nathan's already referred to it several times this morning, and um, today we look at what, it, what does life look like, uh, a dependence of looking at the dependent life of Jesus. See, there's a, before I begin, I just before we hit this passage, I want to say to you, I think there's a sense in which Jesus has come and put on flesh. This uh, uh, Paul refers to him as the second Adam or the last Adam. He's, he's the fullness of humanity. And there's a sense in which perhaps we don't even know what it looks like to be fully human as we bear the image because... We're fallen human. And Jesus, the God-man, the one who's perfect, the fullness of humanity, right? He's not fallen. And this just dawned on me like a couple years ago. Like, duh, Robert. Like, if you want to know what life looks like as an image bearer of the king, watch the way Jesus did life. (laughs) Wow. Seems like a novel idea. Like, Somebody hit me in the head with a spoon again. Uh, and, and so I've been captivated by the beauty of this person. 
So when we look at John 5, look at John 5 with me in these verses that we read through this morning. And Jesus says, in John 5, he said, 18, um, sorry, 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Do you see the, the, the one attribute, uh, one thing we can learn by watching Jesus? And here's where I think really the brass tat, like rubber meets the road here, because we can speak truth all day long, like I could say to you, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, your own, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. But until I take that proverb and actually watch Jesus Christ live that proverb out, all of a sudden this truth takes on tangible reality in the person of Jesus. So as I'm watching Jesus in His dependence on the Father say, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. It's an expression of utter dependence. And if Jesus is the fullness of humanity, then that means if He says, I can do nothing, I can only do what I see my Father doing, then shouldn't we... In the fallenness of our humanity, how much more do we live out our dependence? How much more do we, as fallen humanity, need to live in utter dependence on the Father? Of utter dependence on the power of the Spirit who in Christ dwells in us. He's this amazing second Adam. The one we watch, the one we live, the one we see and learn from. You know, look what he says too in, in, in 5.30. We'll, get, we'll go back to this passage in 19 and 20. In 5.30 he says, I can do nothing on my own. He says it again. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If you look at John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. John 7.28. You notice in a pattern of Jesus' life, utter dependence on His Father. John 7.28. I'm not here on my own, but, I own, but He who sent me is true. You do not know Him, but I know Him because I am from Him and He sent me. John 8.28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father taught me. And then John twelve forty nine and 50, For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that His commandment leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Do you get a picture of the person of Jesus here? I mean, think about the way in which Jesus walked. That all of those disciples witnessed and they were utterly amazed and finally got it after the resurrection. And it 
changed everything. And I think all the epistle writers and all the rest of the New Testament, all these guys are just reflecting back on the beauty of this person that they watched do life. And they're learning what life looks like from Jesus. I mean, think about it for a moment. The very words that I say, Jesus says, I only say if the Father tells me to say them. Could you imagine how many relational, how much relational damage could be prevented if you and I watched the beauty of the person of Jesus and learned from Him to imitate Him and before we spoke a word, we just simply said, Father, do you want me to say this? I mean, that's the way Jesus did life. That's, a, that's a utterly unbelievable. See, what it should do is start captivating our hearts for the beauty of this person. That, that now it's not just, He is my perfect righteousness. But I'm actually captivated with the beauty. I'm seeing perfect righteousness lived out in very tangible ways. Whether it's loving your enemies. You think about Jesus the last few hours of his life and loving his enemies. He washes Judas's feet. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. A soldier's ear is cut off and he puts the ear back on. He heals, heals the soldier. He goes before Pilate and Pilate begins to interrogate him. And he says, Pilate, in this really gracious way, Pilate, is this, are these the words that you said or, did, or is this what others have told you? In, it's almost like he's inviting Pilate. Jesus is, is on his way to Golgotha and there's ladies weeping along the side of the road and Jesus says, Weep no longer. He's, on, he's, he's being nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's hanging on the cross, dying, and a thief next to him. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's hanging on the cross and he's almost dead and he looks down at his mother and he says, John, take care of her. He never turns inward. Life of utter dependence on the Father. It's that we're watching what life, the intention of life looks like for us. It's like, it's like God has said, you want to know what, what I intended for you as an image bearer? Then watch the second Adam. Watch the way he does life. Watch the way he loves. Watch the way he cares. Fall in love with him. It's this childlike dependence that Jesus displays in these passages we've read. You can see this, it works itself out in a lot of different places. Uh, in particular, John chapter 7, if you'll turn over there, if you've got your Bibles, Jesus is invited to this feast of the booths. Let me just read the first nine verses of that. It says, After, these, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand, which is a celebration a week long. Like they, they're celebrating 
uh, their, their years of wandering where they were living in tents and they would go to Jerusalem, build a temporary shack and live in it for a week in celebration of God's delivery. Verse 3, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show, yourselves to the, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified that, it works, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Interesting, isn't it? That even the, you know, all these little minute decisions that Jesus makes in life. Here in John 7, why didn't Jesus go up to Jerusalem with them? Well, there's lots of reasons. One of the main reasons is Jesus wasn't looking for fame and fortune. Right, when he heals the, uh, the widow of Nain's son and raises him from the dead, all Jesus did in the midst of a crowd of potentially thousands of people is he went up and touched the casket, raised the son, and gives the son back to the woman. He didn't do like most American males would do and go, hey, watch this, I'm getting ready to raise somebody from the dead. Everybody look here. This is going to be amazing. Watch me. No, Jesus just in utter humility. And here, going up to Jerusalem, he was in, he was in such dependence on his father that he didn't want to go up and get all the accolades and do all these signs and miracles in front of the people because he was so in tuned in communion with his father that he knew it wasn't time. And so he delays going up. And later on, he actually goes up, but he goes up in secret. And nobody really even knows he's there until later when he's teaching in the synagogue. He's just so in tuned with his father. So... I want to give you an illustration that if you go back to our text in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will, show, will He show Him so that you may marvel. The Father loves the Son. How did Jesus live in such utter dependence on the Father? Paul Miller gives this thing. We haven't come up with a better name for it to see Jesus other than the Y-graph, which is not real creative. Um, but it's the but it's where do, where does this this dependence flow out of? How can you and I, if we're called followers of the way and followers of Jesus, how can you and I begin to live a life of dependence like Jesus? How can we begin to imitate him in that? Well, you see that kind of, if you pretend there's kind of a, a water line here, kind of below the water line, what we find in the life of Jesus is he's communing with the Father in prayer and in spending time with him. They, that the worship center of Jesus was the heart of his father. That he, he knew the love of the father for him before all eternity, and he, he was longing for it 
in the last few days, right, in, the, in, his, in his final discourse with his disciples, you, you get this sense that Jesus is so close to being back in the presence of that, that glory he had with the Father before the world existed. And he knows the deep love of the Father for him. And it's like this, it's like below the waterline, the worship center of Jesus is his Father's love. And as a result of that, what comes out of that is Jesus doing, longing to do the will of the Father and doing the things the Father loves. And so what you get above the waterline, what we see in Scripture, is this kaleidoscope of beauty, of what love looks like. Have you ever looked through a kaleidoscope? Anybody know what a kaleidoscope is? It's this little, it's like this long tube looking thing and it's got like a, some kind of crystal thing at the end and you look through it and the colors and the lights and all that go everywhere. Somebody that knows more about a kaleidoscope is laughing at me because I didn't do a great description of it. But it's a, you look through it and you just see this refraction of all this beauty everywhere. And that's, that's what Jesus displays as we're watching Jesus do life. He's, he's going back down into the heart of the Father. He's reminded of the Father's love. And out what we see above the waterline is this beauty of what it means to love. And we're learning what love looks like when we watch Jesus. One of Paul Miller's books, Love Walked Among Us, it's entitled that because it's, it's showing us that, that outside of Jesus coming, the Father sending His Son to us, we would have no concept of what love means. And that's because of the beauty of His life and His person and the beauty of the cross. We understand what love looks like. You know, you think about the, those aspects of the beauty of His communion with the Father are often displayed in... in I really love your all's pastor. He's a super great guy. Jimmy and I got together a few weeks ago. We just wanted to, just wanted to meet him. And um, man, what a kind, gentle servant uh, of, of Jesus. And he's been in a, like a cohort with one of the guys from See Jesus, a praying life cohort. And it's helping, helping pastors and leaders in the church learn what it means to be dependent on God in prayer. Do you realize um, there was no one busier in the history of the world than Jesus Christ? We're surrounded by a culture of busyness. And you know what I learned from Jesus? He spent more time communing with His Father the busier He got. See, if, if Jesus were alive today and he was running a company, actually, he probably wouldn't run the company because they would consider him unproductive. I mean, imagine going, in, going into Jesus' office. He's, oh, he's praying again. <laughs> Jesus, we got these numbers. We need to get out. Where's the report? Oh, Jesus is praying again. Jesus, we, we have this meeting set up. Yeah, Jesus would always keep his calendar organized and well Jesus do we really have to spend 
an hour praying to the Father before we get to the business of the meeting? <laughs> it would just be the nature in which Jesus lived life was so purposeful. The pace, of, can you get a sense of the pace of life for Jesus? I can imagine a guy like me who's always rushing. We'll just go, man. All right, Jesus will stop and pause. It just forces me, again, like I know I'm like beating this drum a lot, but if, if he is the perfection of humanity, then maybe we should watch the way he does life and, and learn from him. And actually our union with Christ, which we're really great at, should always, without exception, lead us to an imitation of Christ. Which we're usually not that great at. This, Jesus is calling us into imitating Him. I mean, what does, what does self-will look like? I looked up, I just googled uh, the definition of independence, the opposite of dependence. Self-rule Self-determination, sovereignty, autonomy, non-alignment, freedom, and liberty are the definitions of independence. Our self-will longs for, and the flesh longs for independence. Brothers and sisters, children, listen. You weren't made to be independent. You were made to be fully dependent. Jesus was the most dependent person to ever live. Long for communion with your Father. How do we relinquish this will? How do we submit to His will? I think it begins with an admission of saying, I'm really self-willed. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. It begins with confession. And it begins with watching the beauty of the person of Jesus. It starts with just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening in prayer. Be honest about the difficulty of life that looks like the life of Jesus. I mean, you look at Jesus in John 12, and Jesus is staring the cross, in the, in the, he's, he's staring at the cross that's coming up, and he's grappling with his self-will. Father, not my will. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? There's a grappling with it. Well, ultimately, Jesus submits to the will of the Father in dependence and says, not my will, but your will be done. So in, let me just close with this illustration. In a few weeks, my two sons and I are going to Rocky Mountain National Park to go three days in the backcountry in a place called Skeleton Gulch. So if we don't return, you know why they named it that. Um, 
we're going to be hiking along this trail in the Rocky Mountains. And sometimes we're just going to stop and gaze at the beauty of the Colorado River as it flows through the meadows. Sometimes we're probably going to stop and gaze at a big bull elk. And his horns are still have velvet and they're growing. We're going to stop and gaze at the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains and be in awe of them. And I hope that through life, in the daily moments of life, as we see Jesus, that sometimes we'll be just be stopped in our tracks and pause and be still and just gaze at the beauty of Jesus as we spend time in His Word and time in prayer and see the kaleidoscope of this love that He shows us. May we be awestruck and fall in love with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come now to um, a beautiful picture of your love for us in the supper. We ask that you would prepare our hearts as we uh, know that this supper represents utter dependence. And we come and feast off the body and the blood of Jesus Christ because we know that in you is the fullness of life. And we have it in abundance because of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.